Well, welcome back to Live Longer, the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. And today I have a wonderful guest in the studio. He's a very talented British hand surgeon and artist, originally from Malta. He completed his medical studies at Charing Cross Hospital and became a consultant hand surgeon at Frenchay Hospital in Bristol before moving and now he's in the private sector at Circle Bath Hospital and One Welbeck in London. Now, this guest is particularly interesting as he is a very, very talented hand surgeon and we're looking forward to talking to him about working and painting um, the hands that he actually operates on, which is very, very unique. And also his charity. Um, we're looking forward to hearing where he spends a lot of time and energy with sufferers of leprosy, particularly in Nepal. He's a very talented surgeon, having won the Ian McGregor Medical Prize, actually, um, during his training period and, and does lecture in Nepal widely. In addition to all of these accomplishments, he's an illustrator and has illustrated a number of poetry books um, for Louis de Bernier. And we look forward to hearing about that and discussing some of the wonderful illustrations in those books, too. So join me in welcoming Mr. Donald Samet. Welcome, Donald. Millie, thank you for inviting me and for that undeserved and flattering introduction. Well, Donald, having read your bio and talking to you a number of times before this interview, I mean, I could have gone on and on and on, but I thought we've, we just can't wait to start talking with you about all of the inspiration um, behind your work. And, and I thought it would be a good starting point, you know, you're, like you were colleagues and, and you're a surgeon. What made you become a hand surgeon? Um. I, I think in all these things is an element of coincidence, really. It depends a bit on partly on your inclinations um, and what appeals to your personality, but also simply the people you meet who inspire you. I was interested in hand surgery almost by chance. I sat in a, a couple of lectures by a very imaginative uh, and incredibly fantastic surgeon from Strasbourg called Guy Fouché, and he gave two lectures, by the end of which I wanted to be a hand surgeon. Perhaps impetuously walked up to him in the interval and said I wanted to be a hand surgeon and could I come work for him. And he interviewed me on the spot. Um, I happened to be fluent in French, and about a year later I was working for him. The interesting thing was that he normally took fellows for about six months, but because I translated and illustrated his papers and became quite useful, I stayed for 18 months and overlapped with other fellows, in fact. But anyway, that, that period with this inspirational man made me, you know, stamped me as a hand surgeon. Years later, as part of my finishing, before I became a consultant, I went to work for another very wonderful surgeon called Daniel Marchac in Paris. And he did a lot of aesthetic surgery, and he was a big pioneer um, in altering the shape of children's skulls. So children born with very severe deformations of the skull and face, and he would turn them into normal faces. I was just as inspired by that, and incidentally, I also got on with him a lot better. We had a lot in common. He was a great art collector. But you see, my point is, had those two fellowships been reversed, I'd be a craniofacial surgeon today. Mm -hmm. Interesting. It is serendipity. You know, you obviously performed very well for the first surgeon and that gave your career a boost and you ended up 
becoming a hand surgeon. How fascinating. And well, tell me what in particular about hand surgery? Was it something about your personality or what drew you to hands? It's very important to identify a dynamic to each specialty. So, for instance, if you like your week completely organized down to the last detail, don't become a trauma surgeon because your week will be constantly disrupted and pulled this way and that. Hand surgery appeals to me because attention to detail is rewarded. You get um, a result in proportion to the effort you put in. And that is in contrast to many other specialties in surgery. For instance, for a while in my training as a plastic surgeon, I did burns. And I, I really did like burn surgery. But the outcome of burn surgery is often the success is that the patient survives, but it's often a very scarred result and possibly with impairment of function. So you might be very skilled, dedicated, hardworking as a surgeon, but the outcome is not in proportion to what you put in. And I think in hand surgery, that is different. Yes. And, and we were chatting about this um, in preamble to this discussion where you explained that actually the outpatient setting is so critical in your subspecialty of surgery. Obviously, operating is, is important, but the outpatient setting is where you really get to know the patient and where the empathy comes out. Would you hold that opinion? I think, and I teach my juniors too, that surgery is won and lost in the outpatients. You go to theatre to execute a plan, but that plan is the result of your conversation with a patient, your assessment of his or her symptoms, and why this person come now? Um, have his or her symptoms become so severe? How are they impairing? Uh, what outcome is expected? And that's when you, you get the patient on your side. And in hand surgery, that's crucial, of course, because you need so much cooperation after the operation uh, in the rehabilitation. Um, if you don't follow rehabilitation and physiotherapy, you don't get a good result. So it's very important, I think, for particularly for junior surgeons not to be what I would call seduced by the theatre lights and be itching to operate. It's the assessment of the patient and the decisions that you make that give you a good result, along with the empathy and the fact that you enlist that patient on your side. Yes, I mean, I, I couldn't agree more, particularly as a rheumatologist, where we're primarily outpatient based and really listening to the patient's story is how we're going to get a better outcome for the patient. And of course, the name of this podcast, Live Longer, the podcast is all about that, is what else can we do to enable people to get a better outcome so they do have a better life? It's also important to see an, an encounter with a surgeon as an enhancement of that patient's life rather than a technical exercise. Of course, the technique needs to be immaculate, but it's not the centre of what you do. The whole point is to integrate with that patient's life. Yes. And you actually draw the surgical procedure and give it to the patients, don't you? So that they have an understanding of it that lingers long after they leave the operating room or the outpatient consultation room when their follow-up happens. Yes, during the consultation, I will often sketch the hand, particularly if it's got a contracture, a deformity, a missing finger or an arthritis as we talk. And I think that has merit. Um, I think one of the most basic requirements 
in a consultation is that patients should receive your total concentration. And I think if you're, while you're talking, also examining every millimeter of the hand and sketching it, and it actually looks like their hand, I think that goes some way to almost, I wouldn't say persuading, perhaps it's too strong a word, the patient that you are absorbing that condition and understanding. When I then operate, I do sketch um, virtually every step of the operation, and the patient receives a copy of that as does my hand therapist and the GP, plus one in the records, of course. So uh, in that crucial rehabilitation period, everyone knows exactly what's been done. And the patient also feels confident that it matches what's been described beforehand. This handing over of uh, drawings of the operation, of course, has a special status in Nepal, but I'm sure we'll come to that. Oh, yes, we will indeed. And maybe now would be a good time. I mean, not only are you working as a clinical surgeon, but you also have a a charity which is focused on patients with leprosy who get extraordinarily difficult hand problems. So so now might be a good time to tell us a little bit about that, actually, Donald. That's work I've been doing for, this is the 21st year I've been doing it. For the first nine years, I went to India. I went to a leprosy village in, in central India, in Maharashtra, near Nagpur, And there were about 2,000 patients with leprosy in that village. And over nine years, I worked my way through all the ones who wanted surgery. Just a little diversion here. Um, Leprosy, uh, a lot of people think, uh, simply makes you miss parts of your fingers or extremities. But in fact, what it does do is it paralyzes nerves. And so hands waste and don't work well. You lose grip, you lose sensation. And most of the patients I treated there, and still do, in fact, are illiterate farmers. So they depend very literally hand-to-mouth. The very definition of hand-to-mouth, if they don't work today, they don't eat tomorrow. Depends on what they can carry or dig or um, hoe or plough, work in the fields. And so restoring grip to those hands is, is crucial. I think it's always very satisfying to know that if you've given grip to that person in front of you as a farmer, perhaps his, the rest of his family will eat better. Maybe his kids will go to school. Anyway, after nine years, I'd run out of patience in that village. And so I moved to Nepal and I began a sequence of hospitals there and changed my method, really. First of all, I did a lot more teaching in Nepal and many more doctors wanted to come and learn than I had found in the leprosy village in India, which wasn't, in fact, a hospital. So I realized that the real value of that work is to teach and empower the local doctors. And so the method became one of um, going to one hospital, teaching the doctors until they could fly solo, and during those visits, find out what kit they needed. And when they were fully equipped and could operate in the repertoire that we taught them, we'd move on. So at the moment, the project is on uh, hospitals three, four and five in Nepal. Mm. And how is this funded, um, Donald? I raise the funds. Ah. (laughs) I I lobby benefactors. My patients donate. um, I sell paintings. I illustrate all those funds. They go into the charity. And the rest of my team, too, I've now got a team of eight. They also raise funds. One of my um, team, um, bless her, got married and asked for donations to my charity. That 
the wedding guests um, raised about £3,000 that year. Another of my team, who's a, a wonderful therapist, Jean Cahill, who's Irish, she did a sponsored swim. Hmm. So it's this sort of piecemeal funding. I also should mention that Etihad, the airline, has sponsored us for the past eight years now, each time flying us to Kathmandu return for free. They've been absolutely essential in keeping this project viable because, as you can imagine, the flights would be the single biggest expense. Absolutely. Well, Working Hands Charity is amazing and we will be sure to put a link to the charity on our website. So if anybody feels like donating, which is an incredibly worthy cause, they can. And certainly you inspired me, Donald, when you shared a very short clip of a man as the bandages were unwrapped and he could see the effect your surgery had having not been able to move his hands. It, w- it was incredibly moving. Could you tell me a little bit about him? Well, he, he was a farmer, well, he is a farmer, um, who had had leprosy and his thumb had been paralysed, as was the rest of his hand. But in other words, his thumb couldn't come away from the palm so that he could grip a hoe. And that thumb hadn't moved for several years. And a lot of the work you do in leprosy is to find muscles that still work which are performing something dispensable and transfer it to perform a more vital task. In this case, moving his thumb. Um, If you lose your thumb, you lose 40% of your grip strength automatically. And that's what we did with him. We brought his thumb round and the clip I showed you was of his face when he saw it move for the first time after several years. Yeah, it's a very powerful image. And of course, you're not just giving him his thumb function back, but you're giving somebody's dignity back to them because there is a stigma that comes in some parts of the world with leprosy. And you are really helping these people regain their life, their sense of self-worth, which is such an important part in one's overall well-being and longevity. Yes, I think the ability to earn your living it will always is always an imp- a vital aspect of your self worth and dignity. Of course, yeah. Incidentally, you, this came about this bit of the conversation because we we're talking about the drawing of the operations. Um, when we finish our visit in Nepal on the last day, all the patients come out and we do a ward round, sometimes out in the open on the grass, and all of those operation notes are laminated. I take a, lam- a laminator with me mm. and each person, then we go around each patient and hand them the copy of their operation. And the doctors whom I've, whom I've been teaching on that visit will also come around and they get last instructions of how long, when to take the stitches out, what to do, how to splint. But the crucial element of that uh, laminated drawing is that that patient takes it away. And if they were to be seen by some other doctor, Uh, who wanted to operate on them, even without understanding English, the drawings will tell him exactly what's been done to which fingers, which muscles were taken. I think that's a very important element here because I may never see that patient again. Some of them walk three, four days across the Indian border to come and see us. Mm. Oh, that that is very, very powerful. But I'm sure that even patients in the UK must value it hugely. How do they react when you give them a drawing of their surgery? I mean, it is unique. Yes, I think... One needs to avoid an element of pulling a rabbit out of a hat. I I think it's got a very important clinical and scientific value to have that sort of record, particularly for my therapist. But yes, the patients, a lot of them will say, I'm going to frame this, for example. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It does increase, I think, the, the level of dialogue with that patient. It's very useful 
to be able to show them that you've done exactly what was predicted and if it's been changed, why it's been changed and what's been done. Mm. Well, I mean, you're you're lucky that you're blessed with the gift of being able to create these wonderful images um, which you've kind enough to share with us and your subjects or your patients in your working day life. But I was also intrigued that you've got a very creative side to you. And for instance, you've shared that you've illustrated some poetry and, and really the words popping off the page are what inspire the images, particularly I fell in love with the man who fell in love with the moon. You know, can you talk to us a little bit about your inspiration behind that and and how does that image come about? I think um, it's always interesting to think of the mechanism of how an image is produced. And illustrating poetry is quite intriguing because, um, of course, one mustn't try to narrate the poem. You can't do that with one image anyway, but you need to capture the light, the spirit of that poem. And often one phrase will leap out of the page and say, you know, do me, do me. And when I when I did these volumes of poetry for Louis, Louis de Bernier, he would send me poems as he produced them, printed on A4 paper, sometimes three in a day. And that first reading would always be very important. I'd simply underline one phrase that stood out. And often that would turn into the image which I would then choose to portray. The man who fell in love with the moon is about a man who leaves a party late at night and inebriated catches sight of the moon um, and falls in love with it and completely unbalances his life. It's allegorical, of course, but he abandons the rest of his life and simply is fascinated by the moon. And so it's always difficult to illustrate an abstract. And so, as you've seen, I don't know whether you'll publish this on, on your site, but I illustrated the moon as a balloon with a man hanging from it, suspended from it. And part of the exercise was to make it ambiguous. You just didn't know whether he was taking off or landing. Yes, he's taking flight. Well, we we certainly will um, publish that on our site with your permission, because I think it's quite a powerful image. And it just shows the imagination and creativity that you have. And, you know, as a, a medic, I can attest to the fact that we have limited resources. And in all of my jobs, I've had to try and innovate on the job. Do you think you being an artist has helped you innovate how you do things and how you improve the situation for your patients where resources are limited? We've heard about it in Nepal, but what about in day-to-day life in the UK? Does your creativity help you? It certainly helps me personally. I think any creativity is enriching. It's it's very useful to explore whether you're able to do something. And it's it's a different language too. I think I'm fascinated by the connection between hand, the brain and eye. If I was looking at the subject and drawing, anyone looking at that drawing as it is being produced is actually looking through my eyes. I'm, I'm fascinated by that concept that the, the hand is executing what the eye is seeing. And anyone who draws will tell you that the key is not so much the execution, but the seeing. Um, it's almost a hackneyed phrase, but it's very true you need to examine meticulously everything that you are drawing. And this is particularly useful in my work, as you can imagine. Before every operation, I will sit and sketch the hand for a minute or two while everyone is assembling things, anesthetist is plugging things in, etc. It only takes a minute or two, but that 
moment of scrutiny of the hand while you uh, run the choreography of the operation through your head, I find very useful. Uh, obviously, it's not essential. It simply is my way of doing things. And obviously quite calming as well, because, you know, when you're operating, you know, it's a high stress situation and you've got to look after your own mental health whilst maintaining the best outcome for the patient. So I think it's intriguing to hear you talk about this moment of calm before the the whole um, theatre of the theatre erupts. <laughs> Theatre is stressful in a very particular way. It's one of the few times in the week when you're in total control. Mm -hmm. Um, You're executing a plan. It's the rest of surgery which is more unpredictable and I would submit a bit more difficult. Operating is the relatively programmed part. Yes. And what I really enjoyed hearing as well linked with this was how you mentor your trainees. And you did tell me that, you know, you brought them to your house or um, somewhere where you were teaching them and you were all training, drawing drawing jugs together. Can you tell me a little bit about that? So you're trying to impart this to your trainees as well. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I think when you draw, you train your eye to see better. And when I had my own NHS team around me, we... Of course, my juniors would always sit with me in clinic and see me draw, and they'd also see me draw in theatre. And a few of them would be interested in doing this. And uh, for a time, I we would meet sometimes on the weekend, and I'd organise a little class for them. So uh, the table would fill with interesting paraphernalia, a pepper mill, a jug, a glass, um, uh, anything like that which had a shape that one must follow. What was interesting about that exercise was that Even those who did not produce realistic or uh, drawings in proportion, for example, and not everyone can, I noticed that the caliber of their note-keeping and their clinical skills improved. I'd like to think they saw a bit more clearly uh, or they examined a bit more carefully. Mm, That's fascinating because, of course, we are doing this series in conjunction with Homerton Changemakers Programme at Cambridge University, and that is all about training people to think about the complexity of the world and how we change and do things. And and I think this would be a fascinating discipline to introduce into medical school, to train people how to listen, to see, observe, to get better outcomes for our patients. One of the appealing things about drawing is that in so much of what we do, we are receiving. We're listening, we're watching the telly, we're watching a movie, we're reading. With drawing, we're on the transmitting side of ourselves. We're actually expressing something. And I think that in itself is enriching. Yes. and But what do you say to people who cannot draw or perceive that they cannot draw? And how do they um, use drawing to help themselves feel better, to see the world in a different way? Can anybody learn how to draw? I suppose a grain of talent is useful. Um, <laughs> but, but then the rest is application and a lot of practice. I find, even without um, thinking of it consciously, I draw something every day. Um, Even if I'm on a phone call, for example, I will doodle anything that's in front of me. Part of the exercise, I think the more important part of the exercise is seeing. A lot of people look rather than see. The coordination between your eye and your hand comes with practice. The, the confidence of a line doesn't start out when you're a child. Of course, children are very confident with their drawing, but a lot of it is inaccurate. In fact, it's appealingly naive. Personally, 
I, I'm fascinated by line. I'm not really a painter. I feel I'm much more of a draftsman. Yeah. You shared lovely line drawings with us, didn't you? You shared a number. Yes. A, a life class, for example, is always very interesting because you're chasing that line. David Hockney rather charmingly called it groping for the line. And you find yourself doing tentative light lines until the one that is true appears. The other fascinating thing about a line is if you draw the outline, say, of, of a, a bottle, that line has a certain power about it because the paper on either side of it is identical. But the one enclosed in the shape has now become the model, the body, while the bit outside that is still space. So your mind does the work in, in, in converting that, but the line has led you there. The line has claimed that paper and made it into that shape. Yes, fascinating. Well, you know, we're blessed to have you on this call today, Donald, and I think you've touched on so many things. You know, you've inspired us into thinking how a surgeon goes about his day to day job and leverages art and creativity. Um, one of my other interviewees, Christopher Wilkinson, um, was very strong on art and science actually should be taught together in the curriculum because one leverages the other. And you've also given us some thoughts about how we can make change by listening hard, by seeing as opposed to looking, listening as opposed to hearing. And I think these are very, very important attributes that um, as we train the future generation of doctors, we need to make sure that we can listen and see better. So I just want to thank you so much for joining me today. And um, I look forward to seeing lots more of your art in the future. And I would encourage all of our listeners to check out your charity website. And if they feel generous to donate, because it's going to help and impact so many people's lives who are not as fortunate as us. Thank you, Donald. Thank you, Millie. And thank you, everybody, for listening. And join me next week when we interview Professor David Eisenberg, who's a professor of rheumatology at UCLH. And he is a musician. And let's hear how he leverages his music talents uh, for the health and well-being of himself and his patients. Thank you so much for listening. And if you want to get in touch, please feel free to email us at hello at livelongerthepodcast.com. Thank you.